You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so nice to be here with all of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Christine O'Leary. Christine is the U.S. Board Trustee for the Hematomacrosis international organization, and she has a really great story to share with all of us. Um, At the end of the show, Sherry Morrison will be with us for her Lifestyle Watch segment, and she'll be joined by Ellen Yin. Ellen is an award-winning restauranteur here in the Philadelphia area, owning multiple restaurants. Um, And as always, thank you so much to my watch team of corporate partners, who support the show. If you're new and you want to learn more, you can visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very excited to welcome to the show, Christine O'Leary. Christine, thank you for being with me. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. I tremendously appreciate it. I apologize for the little flub at the opening. I, I was kept thinking I want to pronounce hemochromatosis correctly. It's difficult to say. There's no, that is a difficult condition to say, but easy it to is. treat. We'll talk about that. And, so. and actually, not that common. I, I have to say, before I met you, I had not heard about this particular um, disease before. So it's going to be interesting to let people know more about it. Great. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to first start out um, and find out a little bit more about the young Christine. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the community you grew up in in Pittsburgh. 
Oh, absolutely. So I am born and raised in Pittsburgh, um, went to college in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. And the neighborhood that I grew up in, I grew up in the city and it's called Brookline. It's in the South Hills. And it was a wonderful, wonderful community of kind people, plenty of organized sports to keep all of the kids out of trouble and um, just a, a great, great supportive community. Everybody knew everybody. And so um, as a kid, you couldn't get away with much because somebody would be telling your parents. Right. And it was <laughs> it was wonderful. And I, I played basketball and softball and the community center in our um, in our neighborhood was uh, through city parks, which is the, the city run um, formalized parks and recreation. And they were like a second family and we we would go when the sun came up and when the street lights came on, we would go back home. And so and we spent our entire day at the Brookline Community Center and it was wonderful. Did you have siblings? I have one sibling. I have an older brother okay. and um, whatever he did, I followed. I was basically his shadow. So mm -hmm. he played baseball. I played softball. He played basketball. I played basketball. <laughs> and so it, it was one of those things. And it was it was very nice because we were very close growing up and um I always knew that I could, I was always in a safe zone because I knew like he wasn't too far away. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have one of those. Um, <laughs> tell me, when, when did you start to think about um, pursuing pharmacy or going to pharmacy school yeah. and getting into the field of health? Where did that inspiration come from? So it actually came, they came from my mother. I wasn't certain what I wanted to do when I you know, was getting to, to the age of, of determining college, et cetera. But I absolutely positively love science. I always have. I love everything about it. I like learning about it, talking about it. And it was my mom who said, you know, you should try pharmacy school. It's a great profession, you know, particularly for women. If you decide to take a break from your career and then you want to step back in, you can always do that. And it was 100% my mom. And when I... Um, when I applied and, 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 you know, eventually got in, I thought, I, it seems okay. It, it, I didn't have that role model of, of the community pharmacist that, that's so prominent now. I didn't know a lot about what it was, but I just knew I'd be taking four types of chemistry and some uh, biology, and it was just wonderful. So I always say that I, I, tripped, I kind of tripped into pharmacy. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, I, ha I have a quote here. I love this because I think it says a lot about who you are. Um, when you went to interview for pharmacy school, the <laughs> assistant dean cannot believe he said this. Um, you'll you'll never make it because your math scores are so low. And if you do, you'll you'll struggle. Yes. And you said challenge accepted. <laughs> And then, you know, you landed on the dean's list. So, yeah, so. I love that about those two words are such a great um, example for young girls. Uh, thank you. And, you know, it took me, um, I held it together during the interview because I was so stunned that um, that, that would be said. Uh, during the, I was like, well, that's not supportive at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something an educator should be saying. I was like, hmm. Wow. And um, once I got into, uh, my mom picked me up from, from the interview and I just broke down in tears. I'm like, mm. I'm never going to get in. And he said, my math scores are too low. And she went, 
they weren't that low. I'm like, I don't know. I guess it just, if I do get in, I'm going to struggle. And she went, listen, you're going to get in and you're going to get through as long as you put your mind to it and you work hard at it. And it, it was very hard. It pharmacy school sure. is incredibly difficult as it should be with any of the, the healthcare professions. But I was really proud of myself that I ended up making Dean's list every semester. And I'd be like, hello, Dr. So-and-so, how are you? Oh, I was hoping you went back to show, to show so that I, report card. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. But uh, no, it was, um, it was a, it, an interesting start to the pharmacy career, but something that um, it really motivated me. It really yeah. Tell me, tell me about mom and dad. Did, did your mom work outside of the house? Did she do? She did. No, she did not. But she was very active in our community. She was a Democratic committee woman for our local district in Pittsburgh. And she was also one of the founding members of a nonprofit organization um, called the South Pittsburgh Development Corporation that um, worked with the city to have a say for what types of developments would happen uh, within the Brookline community. And so she was one of the founding board members for that. Okay. Yeah, my father active. was a, yeah, very active. Yeah. And my father was a homicide detective. So he had been with wow. the, um, the Pittsburgh police for, oh gosh, 32 years um, when he did retire. And so service to others was always something that was instilled in myself and, and in my brother um, as, a, as a way to give back to the community and a way to get a tremendous amount of fulfillment. And it was wonderful to have the, those models when I was growing up, because it really helped me, um, you know, select a profession. Granted, I didn't know if I wanted to go into pharmacy, but I knew it was science and I knew I'd be helping people. And so it checked the two most important boxes for me at the time. Yeah. Tell me about what was your very first job out of college? My very first job out of college was a, I was what's called a floating pharmacist for Thrift Drug, which no longer exists. It's now under the Rite Aid umbrella. And it's uh, what they call community pharmacy or retail pharmacy. It was really fun because I covered a lot of shifts in my hometown, in Brookline. And so it was so fun because people would be like, oh, Christine, how are you? I'm like, I'm good, how are you? How can I help you? And it was, um, it was really wonderful. One of the um, challenges with um, community pharmacy is that the business model is set up that it's based on the volume of prescriptions that you do. And it really mm -hmm. puts a lot of pressure on the pharmacist um, to, to balance that patient care aspect with, oh, I have to hit numbers or you know, yeah, to get additional help, et cetera. And so that was, um, I did that for three years before finding out about an opportunity in what's now considered managed care pharmacy. And I was with, um, Statlanders Pharmacy, and they had exclusive distribution of one of the first protease inhibitors for HIV and AIDS at a time yeah. when the when the disease was still being um, in, investigated. At that point, it was still considered a terminal condition. And so it was, again, by happenstance that I was contacted. I was um, lucky enough to, to secure the position, and I was with them for seven years, and it was amazing. Absolutely wow. amazing. We got to do that one-on-one -on -one patient care that really ideally should be happening in, in the community setting because the pharmacists are so accessible. 
There was a business model for Statlanders that allowed us to do that, though. There was appropriate support. There was dedicated time where you were only speaking to the patients to help them manage their medications. And it was a it was a truly life changing experience. I've always been curious how much a pharmacist is able to or is supposed to be involved in asking questions of people that walk in to pick up their prescriptions. Absolutely. And I encourage everyone to talk to their community pharmacist. We are the most accessible licensed healthcare providers in the U.S. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can find a, a CVS, a Rite Aid, a Walgreens where there will be a licensed healthcare professional there. And we're trained to talk to the patients, to ask the questions, to ensure that inappropriate treatment is not being um, administered or help with those, what we call like over-the-counter problems, poison ivy, allergies, those types of things, and identify if there's something more serious that needs to be referred to a physician. So mm-hmm. I've always seen the pharmacist as a great um, liaison between uh, the general public and the formal healthcare team in the hospitals or in the, in the physician's office. We really can ha- play a huge role in it. When given the opportunity. Yeah. And you know what? We have us lay people so many questions today, yeah. you know, when it pertains to healthcare. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. I want to go back yeah. for a second. Um, you shared with me that you had um, a very impactful experience when you were 16 and went on a trip to Ireland with your aunt. Tell me what was it about that trip that has stayed with you? What stayed with me was that it just instantly opened my eyes to the world outside of my neighborhood, you know, outside of the floor block radius of my house. I had not traveled extensively. Um, My family and I, we'd always go on a vacation, but it was a local um, vacation. And it, it forced me to be comfortable in situations that aren't necessarily comfortable. Um, meaning in certain parts of Ireland, Gaelic is still the first language. And so if, if someone approached me and started speaking, speaking Gaelic, I would have to politely say like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't speak Gaelic. Do you speak English? And it just gave me that, that perspective of not everybody's going to be exactly like me. Not everybody is going to have the same experiences that I do. And there's so much that you can learn from stepping out of your comfort zone into other areas and uh, trying to get a, a, a pulse on another person's perspective. And so for me, it really triggered my global interests and um, expanding the work that I do um, beyond the, the borders of my hometown, my state, or even the U.S., do you happen to have family in Ireland? Yes, yes, yes. I do. Yes, and, and where that was are one they? of the. So um, my family is from uh, County Cork, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, my grandfather is originally from a city called Timaleague, and um, we still have a number of of relatives there. And that was the that was the surprise I had. To this day, I'm I'm still shocked that my my aunt bought me a, a plane ticket to go with her and. It was just met all these cousins who were my age and it was just so much fun and they would ask me a ton of questions there you know at the time i think dynasty was one of the the big programs that was on tv there and they would call it dynasty <laughs> and i got the biggest kick out of it you know i was like oh that's so great um 
it really was a lot of fun to connect with them. Um, we're going to go into our first break and we'll talk more about that when we come back. And the numbers, I was surprised 11 million Americans have a gene that could lead to too much iron. That's a big number. Yes, uh, stay with us for our watch team. If you're listening on Talk Radio 1210 and we'll be right back with Christine O'Leary. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving you the tools and resources you need to succeed financially. Are you having trouble paying your credit card bill every month or feel overwhelmed by the weight of your loans? Debt happens. Not all debt is the result of frivolous spending, though. In order to take some important steps in life, you'll often find yourself having to borrow some amount of money, whether it's for a new home, car, or for college. Regardless of its purpose, it's important to know how to manage your debt so it doesn't become an issue. Debt consolidation is a strategy to help manage your debt by essentially combining it all, leaving you with one single payment and an overall lower interest rate. Worry less about missing a payment while replacing your multiple high-interest debts with one single loan of a lower interest rate. While lowering your interest rate and number of monthly payments, you will likely see a boost in your credit score. This is because you'll be reducing your credit utilization, or how much you're borrowing in comparison to how much is available to you. Take even more weight off your shoulders by setting up auto pay for the monthly balance due. Consolidating your debt is one way to make managing your finances easier and save you time, money, and stress. Take a look at your own situation. Be aware of the risk, like added costs and fees and tricky payment timelines, and make the right decision for you. To learn more, visit PennCommunityBank.com. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Women to watch. Sports Watch. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker, and you are listening to Sports Watch. You know, it's interesting every time I hear uh, the phrase trailblazer and people, you know, edify you with it and say it with reverence, and there is a, a visible and visceral feeling and imagery that I get when it comes up. And it's literally that the trailblazer means you're the one taking all the branches to the face, right? Those unattractive branches swing back and smack you not so gently at times in the face and they wake you up and you go, Oh, well that, that was a big branch or that was uncomfortable. And, you know, let me, let me take this ax and, and cut it out of the way so that the next person will have a cleaner path. And, that's what trailblazer means. It means facing the unexpected, taking branches to the face and continuing to push forward so that the second will have an easier journey, so that the third will have a path to follow, so that you get to a place and a space where you have a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, and at some point you're, you're no longer talking about first because there are strengths in numbers. So the challenge is when you are the first, that also means you are inherently the only. And it means that the entire narrative surrounding something rests squarely on your shoulders. When you are that woman or that person, right, who is a sample set of one, you're setting a standard for what is possible for all other women. Follow me and all my adventures, or you can say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. 
This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I'm Sue Rocco, and you're watching Women to Watch, and I'm joined this week by Christine O'Leary. Christine is the U.S. Board Trustee for the Hematomacrosis International, and by the way, also a global leader with um, Spark Therapeutics, which we can talk a little bit about as well. Um, Just before the break, I mentioned a number that, you know, when I was doing my research, I thought was pretty high. Again, not for having not heard so much about this particular condition. 11 million Americans have the gene that can lead to too much iron. So should we be checking? How do we know? What can we do? Well, it's an excellent question. And certain groups are at higher risk than others. And one of the groups that is at highest risk to develop it are people of Irish descent and people of Northern European descent. So Irish, Scottish, English. If you have that history, that ancestry, there is a higher chance that you do have the, the gene, the genetic mutation that could lead to iron overload. Um, If you have had a family member who has, like in my situation, my my father uh, passed away from it. So his children, his siblings, we all routinely check our iron panel. And one of the challenges with the understanding of the condition is you can have the genetic mutation, but that doesn't guarantee that you will develop it. It just increases your risk. And so monitoring an iron panel on a yearly basis is an excellent way to screen for it and catch it early because when caught early, it's easily treatable. And people with the condition who get the appropriate treatment live as long as those who do not have it. And so it's it's a bit of a, um, it just kind of hides in the shadows, I feel like sometimes. But you can always think of, um, I've done different, awareness campaigns uh, for the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Pittsburgh, because the Irish have one of the highest uh, prevalences of it. As many as one in 10 people of Irish descent have that genetic mutation. Wow. So that's not good for me because I did my ancestry and I'm 96% Irish. Well, so you'll be getting an iron panel <laughs> check soon. I'll be an iron panel. Oh my gosh. Um, that, I wonder why, you know, culturally certain mm-hmm. conditions, diseases manifest in one culture over another. Is there yes, you have any nice sense for that? There's been a lot written about the origins of of hemochromatosis in the Celtic community. And there's been discussion of it was brought over by the Vikings um, or that it was a natural um, biological change due to um, limitations in, in the diet that may have existed. So there was the potato famine in Ireland at a certain point. And did that cause a biological change that a person could gain more iron from from less food. The exact origin is not known, but there are a lot of different uh, theories uh, as to how it popped up. Wow. Um, You know, Christine, I watched an interview you did when you were talking about your dad and you got very emotional. And I wonder if you can talk about, you know, where you are today with that feeling of, gosh, how could I have missed that? in my dad being in in the healthcare profession? Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's been 13 years and I still get as emotional when I talk about it um, because it could have been prevented. Through um, it, my father's death, just it broke our family. He, he was the heart of our family. He was the, the center of it. He kept us all in check. And when he passed and having that knowledge of what do you mean this this could have this didn't have to happen this this could have been prevented was incredibly difficult and it, and it continues to be um what i chose to do i felt like i know more now so i have to do more and using my experience as a healthcare provider who does focus on healthcare communications and having that direct family experience with losing a family member it was for me the right thing to do, to seek out more information, to see are other people experiencing this, because I was so heartbroken that here we are, I'm a healthcare professional, I'm my dad's health advocate, this happened to him, he has access to care, he has adequate insurance, and yet he still suffered a, a misdiagnosis. What is happening to people who don't have the same situation that we do? How frequently are they not getting diagnosed and dying prematurely? And so that's one of the ways that I process my my grief about it. Um, I wanted to ask you about your belief or opinion on, you know, as we learn more about DNA and and you have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the testing that's taking place, you know, should we be testing ourselves for certain genes? You know, it's something people think about a lot, mm -hmm. especially, I think we all have something in our family tree, if you look back. Exactly. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, how much, how little should we be doing that and trying to find out? That's an excellent question. And there are um, several schools of thought on it. My personal opinion is that, is that we need to be judicious about it particularly with something like hemochromatosis, I mentioned briefly, you can have the genetic mutation, but may, but may not develop the disease. And so the best screening to do is the iron panel, which is simple, it's inexpensive, and it gives the exact information that's needed to treat the condition. Um, routine genetic testing that's available can cause um, a tremendous amount of concern and the 
available information that the healthcare teams have can be very limited. And so there are times where we just don't know if a patient, when I was in practice at uh, Jefferson Family Medicine, on occasion, somebody would come in with a 23andMe or in a, what does this mean? And um, it would take a lot of investigation, which is excellent when you uncover something, but can also be very, very upsetting for the patient as they're trying to get the information. And so I think there is definitely a, a place for it in terms of what we advocate for hemochromatosis. It is not genetic screening. It is the iron panel. And again, because that's what's going to give you the information you need to get treated. So if, if you discover that, you know, you have it, is there mm -hmm. um, a prescription drug? What are the things that are prescribed for people that uncover it? Excellent. So the treatment actually is donating blood. It's called therapeutic phlebotomy. Your physician writes a prescription and you donate multiple times, either once a week, twice a week, until you get your iron levels down enough that you're what's considered in maintenance. And so that's another arm of uh, the advocacy that we're trying to do is to um, make people aware of therapeutic phlebotomy or prescribed blood donation is the treatment. And that blood can be utilized for our public health supply and address shortages that frequently happen in our blood supply system in the U.S. Wow. Um, is there anything going on within the organization that you're excited about or that is developing that you would want to share? Oh, absolutely. So we just finished um, the Light Up Red campaign. So June 1st through 7th is International Hemochromatosis Awareness Week, where we rare red and we light up red to raise awareness of the condition. And in Philadelphia, I was fortunate enough to get Boathouse Row lit up red on Friday the 3rd. We also got the Pico building and we had um, a very nice small gathering down at the art museum as a way to raise awareness about it. Because that that's what it takes. This is, does not need to be a terminal condition. It is when it's not diagnosed appropriately and there's too much of a delay. And something as simple as an iron panel can save your life. And so that it was only when I got involved with Hemochromatosis International and our Ireland um, agency started the campaign last year that we've got this light up red and it really gathered a lot of momentum. Even here in Cleveland, um, the Tower City Tower lit up red. And um, in Boston, the, uh, the basketball arena lit up red for hemochromatosis awareness. And so I'm really, really excited about that because it's a formalized campaign. It's very well developed and it has a simple message and it's simply check your iron. Yeah. Um, it's, by the way, you're, you have a day job. <laughs> a day <laughs> job. You're, you know, you're an executive um, with Spark Therapeutics. Tell me about that company, what your role is there, and are they kind of supporting your advocacy for the hematomacrosis? Oh, excellent. Yes. So I am a global medical communications lead for gene therapy at Spark Therapeutics. So Spark Therapeutics is a Philadelphia-based biotechnology company 
investigating gene therapy for rare diseases. The major difference between what Spark focuses on and what I focus on is that the hemochromatosis is so common and not necessarily amenable to gene therapy because we're still learning so much about it. Mm -hmm. And there's simply not that clear cut path with other diseases. So for Spark Therapeutics, we have one FDA approved product, uh, Luxturna, for inherited for a form of inherited retinal disease. We're currently investigating a gene therapy for hemophilia and for Pompe disease. These rare diseases that have a incredibly, incredibly negative impact on quality of life and are a huge burden to the people and the caregivers of, of persons who have these conditions. And it's very, it's, it's fascinating work. And I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And how long have you been in that role, communications for, for Spark? Uh, three and a half, almost four years now. Okay. And am I right to say that gene therapy is not something that's been around for a very long time? And what exactly is it? Absolutely. Um, no, you are 100% correct. In fact, um, the product that Spark brought to the market, Luxturna, was the first gene therapy for an inherited condition approved in the United States. So gene therapy, while there's a tremendous amount of excitement and there's a tremendous amount of work happening, is still in the very early stages of its development. And there are a myriad of different approaches that different companies take. And you really need to look at it on a product by product basis to understand the technology. Um, Christine, I'd love to talk to you about women in science. You know, th this show really is very much about <laughs> women and, you know, across all industries. But when I think about science and how much is happening so rapidly, mm -hmm. um, I guess my first question is, what is the ratio of women at, at Spark? And mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on how we can really encourage more young girls to pursue a field that traditionally was male dominated? Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorite, favorite topics because I'm a huge advocate uh, for young girls to get interested in the sciences because number one, it's fascinating. Number two, there's tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And honestly, one of the things that attracted me to Spark Therapeutics three plus years ago, it was founded by a woman. The chief medical officer was a woman. And I really was so impressed of being able to work in uh, in an organization where the executive and the C-suite was predominantly women. I had not experienced that previously. And it's supportive and it's inspiring. You know, our, the president at the time, Dr. Kathy High, was at the University of Pennsylvania for many, many years before um, starting the, the Spark Therapeutics. And the chief medical officer, Dr. Kathy Reed, also from the University of Pennsylvania. These amazing, intelligent women who are really, really broke ground on advancing the roles of, of women in science. To be a part of that was incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Christine, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to share your life story. I very much appreciate it. And I wish you continued success in your work. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Sue. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. We're going to go into a break. And when we come back, Sherry Morrison will be with Ellen Yin. Stay tuned.
Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. How to get buy-in and launch your creative ideas. Hi there, my name is Diana Barnes, or DB as most people call me, and I'm the Chief Brand Officer and Creative Director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand. Today I want to talk to you about how to get your leadership team to buy into your creative ideas. Brand building is essential to creating a business that stands the test of time. It's also one of the hardest aspects of business to measure and quantify. So how do you convince your leadership team to greenlight a project or a campaign that doesn't directly drive sales? Here are my three tips. First, think like your CEO. Imagine you're the CEO of your company. Ask yourself how your project supports the business. Your answer does not need to be tied to sales to be important. Does your request help position the company as a leader in its industry? Maybe it improves customer experience or boosts brand loyalty. Each of these contributes to the success of a business. Number two, timing is everything. Does your project require $50,000 that isn't in your budget? Part of creating a successful pitch is developing a successful plan and that includes budgeting. If your idea is costly, find out when your company begins budget planning and arrange to make your pitch during the beginning of the process. And last, be flexible. My experience dealing with nuns and rock stars well prepared me for working with CEOs. My best advice is to know your facts, especially the math. Have the answers and expect the unexpected. Think about what in your plan can change to meet the requests of your leadership team without sacrificing your goal. Be flexible and be willing to work with your boss to give them skin in the game and a stake in your idea. I use these three tactics to get buy-in from my colleagues on Munchkin's executive team and our board of directors to launch Stroller Coaster, a parenting podcast. We've become trailblazers within our category, and the show was ranked among the top 2% of shows within Apple Podcast Kids and Parenting category in our debut season. You can listen to it at strollercoaster.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. See you next time. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women to Watch Lifestyle segment. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today, I am honored to introduce you to and interview Ellen Yin, founder and partner of High Street Hospitality Group and Fork Restaurant. Thank you for joining us today, Ellen. Hi, Sherry. Thanks so much for hosting. My pleasure. I'm thrilled that you're here and able to talk to us a little bit about your career and all of your accomplishments. And I don't want to embarrass you, but um, it's difficult to not talk about them and put the spotlight on you um, because you really have done quite a bit for the hospitality restaurant industry, Um, not just in Philadelphia, but everywhere. Uh, Ellen was nominated three times and a semifinalist for the James Beard Restaurant Award. Um, she's known as the woman who first transformed Philadelphia dining scene. She's one of Philadelphia's most successful and insightful restaurateurs and a trailblazer of the farm and to table movement. Um, Ellen, your accomplishments and contributions to the industry, community, and culture in Philadelphia itself is, is a program all on its own. <laughs> so, hey, thanks, Sherry. Um, so let's start off with a little bit about where you grew up in your education and how you ended up doing all of these wonderful things. Well, I'm from a small town in uh, Monmouth County, New Jersey, near Sandy Hook. And um, I, like so many young people, started working in a restaurant when I was in high school, and I just always fell in love with it. Of course, my mother was an incredible entertainer, 
you know, we would always have people at the house on the weekends. My my father had a large family. And so whether it was relatives or, or colleagues or friends, my mother was always, you know, um, putting together a dinner party. And I always loved being part of serving people and um, cleaning up even. <laughs> so that that's kind of where I got my start. And then when I went to college in Philadelphia, I, um, you know, I, I, I just continued working in a restaurant for the most part. Um, I took a year off from school, went back home, had a life crisis, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And when I came back, I thought to myself, maybe the thing that's missing is working in a restaurant. And so I got a job at a restaurant called La Terrasse, which, you know, in the 80s and, um, at, and in its heyday was a very relevant Philadelphia restaurant. Um, and um, that was my first urban restaurant experience. Yeah, uh, I understand exactly the, the path that you started on. I had a, a very similar one. Um, I went, I worked for a small caterer. It was actually a, a girlfriend's mother. Um, all through early high school, ninth, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, and um, and then went to a very prestigious college, which my parents were very happy about. And after a year in college, uh, decided that I didn't think this is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the culinary industry in some manner. It was creative and everything, and. Uh, you, you all, anybody who was in the vicinity of the Outer Banks in 1979 may have heard my father's reaction when I said I did not want to go back to culinary, to uh, William and Mary. So um, anyway, I, I get it. <laughs> so you finished, you ended up going back to Penn, correct? And, and yeah, then so um, while I was in college, I had the opportunity to write a business plan. I was, um, an undergraduate at Wharton. And um, I had the opportunity to write a business plan about a restaurant um, or a location in Old City, just around the corner where, from where Fork is, in fact, um, at Third and Arch, where it was a jazz club with condominiums over it, an uncommon model in Philadelphia. But out of that, I realized that the amount of capital needed to open a restaurant was not going to happen in my immediate future at age 23. So I proceeded to try to find, you know, a direction just like so many other young people. And I worked in a new and a, a number of different types of jobs from advertising agency to fundraising um, before I realized that I still wasn't sure what my direction was going to be. And I still thought I had this restaurant dream that I really wanted. So I escaped to graduate school, what a lot of people end up doing when they don't know what to do, and um, got a master's degree, an MBA in healthcare administration, and ended up working in management consulting and in a hospital at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And, um, and after several years, still didn't feel the same satisfaction. And I think one day I opened up either, I think it was food and wine. And I saw all these young chefs and owners um, in their late 20s, early 30s. And I thought to myself, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And I felt committed at that point to trying at least. 
And fortunately, while I was in grad school, I met my current business partner, a longtime business partner over 25 years. We were classmates in graduate school, Roberto Sella. And, um, you know, we both loved food and wine and just thought, wouldn't it be great to have a restaurant in Philadelphia? Roberto loved wine. He was always looking to have a place where he could bring his own wine. And I just felt that um, this was something that I had to do, despite my family's um, urging to do it later, you know. <laughs> the, the stars all aligned. The stars so, all aligned, right. So about how long was it then until you opened Fork? And how did you ever come up with the name Fork? Um, well, once I decided, I was really determined, but it was extremely difficult because um, the writing the business plan was not that hard, but getting financing was much more challenging. And, you know, even though I had the education backing me, I didn't have any experience. I'd never really run a restaurant. I had only been a bartender, server, you know, the, a very familiar story to many people who want to enter the restaurant industry. You have this dream and now you need to get the financing. And, um, you know, we, we finally found a bank that was willing to make a loan to us. And um, uh, I think all in from the time that I decided that I was going to leave Jefferson to the time I opened was a year and a half. Wow, that's pretty quick. That's it, was, it was pretty quick. Um, and how did I come up with the name Fork? Well, in my consulting travels, I was going to New York um, frequently and I ran into a restaurant called Match. And the logo was just a box of matches, a, you know, matchbook. And I thought that was so clever. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a restaurant who, which when you walk up to it, you just know that it's going to be about great food. And that was when we brainstorm what kind of icon that could be, Fork was the obvious choice. It's perfect. It's perfect. You just want to pick up your fork and dig in. Exactly. Uh, everything that you did um, on Market Street where Fork is located, um, I love the interior design. It's calming, warm colors. It's artsy. The lamps, the chandelier lampshades um, that I can see behind you now, I'm I am infatuated with and have been since the first time I, I saw them. Um, the placement of your bar, the fact that it's square, everybody can see and be seen and kind of they can talk to each other if they're interested. It's just like a warm and comfortable elegance. Um, and, you're, and you're celebrating your 25th anniversary this year at Quirk. How exciting is that? Congratulations. It's hard to believe, but you know, we've been in Old City like you said, for 25 years. And Old City is all about um, the artist community and the galleries and First Friday at the time that we opened. And it was really a sleepy section of Center City. And um, it's amazing to see how much Old City has grown into independent businesses, into um, something that is going to develop with a park at the end, something that I'm really passionate about. But, um, you know, just seeing the neighborhood grow has been an incredible experience. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm sorry that we are out of time because I could go on with you for hours. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and energy to do this interview with us today. And um, if anybody is interested in more information about Ellen or Fork Restaurant, High Street Hospitality organizations, please go to www.highstreethospitality.com. And that's high S-E the abbreviation for street, hospitality.com. 
I hope you'll join us all next week. Um, I'll be meeting with uh, Marcy uh, Shankweiler of the For Pete's Sake Cancer, Cancer Respite Foundation and learning a little bit about how to take a break with cancer. Uh, Ellen, thank you again. Thanks, Sherry. And uh, Sue Rocco will be right back to close out the show. Keep living your dreams, ladies. Thanks. Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. You may not know, but this coming Wednesday, July 27th, will mark the 69th year since hostilities ended during the Korean War, though no formal peace treaty has ever been signed. Each year on July 27th, the President of the United States issues a proclamation announcing a day of national recognition for Korean War veterans and their families. National Korean War Veterans Armistice Day is a time for our country to remember those who bravely fought to protect freedom and democracy in the Republic of Korea. The haunting and powerful Korean War Memorial, known as the Column in Washington, D.C., depicts 19 service members on patrol. The statues represent all the branches of the military and different races and ethnicities. The memorial's inscription reads, Our nation honors her sons and daughters who answered the call to defend a country they never knew and a people they never met. This year, the memorial will unveil an addition, a wall listing over 36,000 Americans and approximately 8,000 South Koreans killed during the war. Thousands of reminders that war and those who are called to serve should never be forgotten. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch. I'm so grateful for our old and new listeners and viewers. Um, great segment with Sherry and Ellen Yin. I've been going to her restaurants for years, and um, it's always so cool to hear somebody's backstory. Um, stay with us next week. I'll be with Kate Curran. Kate is the founder and CEO of School the World. And as always, a big thank you to my watch team of corporate partners for supporting the show and helping us to bring you these great stories of women leaders. Have a great week, everyone, and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.